0: You're listening to Ground Truth, the podcast that brings you insights from the brightest minds in AI, ML, and data science. Join members of the Arthur team as we sit down with the field's leaders and luminaries to talk about topics both trending and timeless. We'll explain groundbreaking research, share unfiltered opinions, and answer questions you didn't even know you had about theoretical and practical applications of AI and ML technology. Whether you're an executive, student, policy wonk, a researcher, or anywhere in between, We hope this podcast will teach you something you didn't know or give you a perspective you hadn't considered. Recorded live from Arthur's New York City headquarters. Hello everyone, and welcome to Ground Truth, episode two. Our guest today is Diego Oppenheimer. Diego has been a pillar of the AI community for many years, starting at Microsoft before founding one of the very first MLOps companies, Algorithmia, in 2014. Algorithmia was acquired by DataRobot in 2021, and Diego stepped up to lead their MLOps strategy. Since stepping down from DataRobot, Diego has somehow managed to make himself even busier, helping to guide the AI infrastructure alliance, the MLOps community, and becoming a partner and CEO in residence at Factory. It's quite a journey. Diego, welcome to Ground Truth. Thanks for having me. You've been deeply involved in the AI world for a long time. So I want to start with your take on the current foundation model, LLM Explosion. Put this in perspective for us. How big of a deal is it?
1: The reason why I got into ML was really because I thought it was the most important technology that we were gonna go see in, in our lifetime. And it seems that the thing that was always missing was how was it gonna go break into the really the mainstream of how everybody could access it. I think the LLMs have really brought that, if you think about it from a user experience perspective, we interact with it with language now. And so everybody, is experiencing it, and so we just got that full, I always hated the word democratization, but it's truly what happened, it's opened it up to everybody. So I think we're seeing what a lot of us thought could happen with ML, and now it's everybody seeing it. And so that's why I think it's such a big movement right now.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So do you think the set of people who are gonna be interacting and using this technology, I mean, is this is this gonna cause it to grow beyond the traditional sort of ML engineers and data scientists, the people who are
1: actually building with it? And Yeah, so, so I think if you, if you look at a traditional machine learning workflow, every single part of it was hard. I had to collect data. I had to go figure out how to build a model. I had to go train these models. I had to go you know, monitor and make sure that they were working in the proper way. Every single part of that was really, really hard in accessing it. And now you have essentially people who are being able to get access to machine learning with just, just talking to, you know, just putting text into a model and getting a response. If you think about anybody accessing it through API. So, the, air, the barrier to entry has been lowered. Now, building these models and maintaining them are super hard, but the access point is really, really opened up.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Obviously, some huge upsides and also some, some risks that come with opening the technology up more
1: widely, huh? I, I think the, it, it comes down to, we're very used to, if people who work in ML understand what a probabilistic workflow is right, and understand that like, hey, sometimes it's gonna behave in this way, sometimes it's gonna behave in that way, and we control and monitor and do all these components for that. Telling kind of the general population of that have not experienced probabilistic workflows and who are used to deterministic workflows, right, which is like, hey, if I do A, I'm always gonna get B. If I do C, I'm always gonna get D. Uh, and they're like, hey, that's not quite how it works. I think that's the part that you know we now need to educate and kind of get everybody on board with because I think that's where you know, the trust factor falls apart, or people are like, you know, well, look, it's just spitting out nonsense. It's like, well. Sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> By design.
0: Right. <laughs> but sometimes it's actually useful nonsense, yeah, right? For exactly. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very cool. I know you guys at Factory are at the forefront of all this and you guys are incubating some really interesting companies. So maybe tell us a little bit about Factory and, and, and what you're doing there.
1: Yeah. So so Factory was started by Andy Jackson, Professor Chris Ray. Uh, so Chris has been the head of Hazy Research, which is one of the premier kind of AI labs at Stanford. That lab coined the term foundational model. So they've been working kind of this space for a long time. The idea behind the fund was to essentially go build the companies that should exist uh, and see if we could grab kind of really the forefront of research. So it's all based on research. So all of our investment thesis is based on usually academic research and, and providing that and, uh, and putting together great teams and see if they can you know, go do stuff like that. So we look at it as a, we take high technical risk in terms of what can happen and try to go build out those kind of next generation of AI companies.
0: Yeah, it's amazing that AI, I mean, it feels like the magic really happens at, the, at that intersection of academia and industry, and it's kind of unique in that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think people in research started seeing what these large language models could do, and not just the large language models, but the general image models as well. And, hey, this whole generative, you know, the academics were seeing this for a couple of years, right? And they're like saying, hey, these results... We're going to still verify them and stuff like that, but this is kind of crazy how these things are working. So being at that bleeding edge has all the risks of being at the bleeding edge, but it's also interesting.
0: Definitely. No, we've seen you know transfer learning for computer, traditional computer vision tasks being used for, for quite a long time. So, yeah. uh, But it does feel new with the language models and, and specifically with generative tasks that they're, they're enabling.
1: Yeah, I think it's that, that surprising connectivity of like, I can interact with it without any, you know no cold start problem, which okay. anybody who's worked in ML for any period of time is just like, wait, what? right because that's what you spend most of your life on right Is okay i'm gonna train this model i'm gonna get something i'm gonna see some results and i'm gonna refine on it now suddenly it's i just did one query and i got the answer and i'm like okay i think that that's where the real magic to me like does and then as you can evolve through i don't know if you've you've worked with a lot of them but like how you can guide the context of a language model and start getting responses in that iterative yeah i don't think we've ever at least from my perspective haven't really experienced a system that has even though it's a very temporary memory, right? It's like, whatever, 32,000 tokens. Being able to have that back in response is kind of amazing.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, you know, in the last six months as these models have exploded. That's been one of the areas where just the, you know, the amount of growth and the amount of context these models and the memory they have is like, just
1: ballooned, which is- Somebody yeah. described them as the, was it the smartest goldfish you'll ever interact with? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>
0: We, we have our own version of LLMs. We call them lots of little mistakes. Because know <laughs> uh, Fair a, enough. Our, our chief scientist, John Dickerson, coined that one, so I have to give him credit. Um, before factory, tell us a little bit more about your founder's journey with Algorithmia. You
1: guys were, you know, perhaps arguably the first MLOps company out there. Yeah, so, so I have to give, um, so I think we, we get coined that, because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think MLOps was a thing, even though, like, uh, somebody else, you know, bought the trademark and stuff like that. Like, and I think for us, it was really, like, recognizing that inference was a problem. That's really what we set out to do. So my co-founder, Kenny, was, you know, finishing his PhD. I was at Microsoft and, you know, he calls me and he's like, look, all these probabilistic code bases, right? And we, we call them algorithms. That's why it's called algorithmia, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't even like models at the time. It was like all this probabilistic code, like nobody knows how to package it. Nobody knows how to run it. Nobody knows how to scale it. And it's going to be everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense. And so that, that was really the insight is that nobody was applying software engineering practices to running probabilistic code, mm-hmm. and that there was an opportunity to go do that. But uh, there's a company here in New York that was before us, and I'm gonna give them credit. It was called Y-Hat.
0: Yeah, Austin.
1: Yeah, and it was called Y-Hat, sure. and, uh, and they had two products. And this is where I think it can actually makes sense. I think that they nailed it. They were way too early, but there's Rodeo Ops and Science Ops. And I only found out about this like after they sold, but they had those two, right? And so Science Ops was their kind of workbench, experience. And then Rodeo Ops was how they put it all together and ran it. <laughs> Brilliant, right? Like, right? So anyway, I give them credit for having been the true first. Yeah. Austin Ogilvie
0: is um, definitely still still around the New York City. Uh, yeah. I yeah. think he has
1: a compliance startup right now. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They're
0: doing very well. They just
1: rebranded. They were
0: called like I okay. can't remember the new name.
1: Yeah. And, and after I found out about how they called the two products, you like, see, you were onto it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So I can only imagine. So we started Arthur in 2019. And at yeah. that time, in 2019, even the vast majority of customers would go to talk to, you know, were very interested but also it was very much an education you know they were just getting started with ai so in 2014 i mean those customer conversations must have been uh must have been interesting
1: yeah i mean I, I, so we started with a very developer focused approach um i mean we were we spent i want to say from 2014 to almost 2016 behind the scenes kind of building there was a lot of technology to build so we we, we spent it kind of uh you know trying to figure out yeah know, we were really going to enterprises we were really just trying to figure out what the world looked like uh, from that perspective and that, yeah I think anytime you go into greenfield kind of space uh, you're gonna have this education call it opportunity problem whatever you want to call it and I remember going into I think one of my early conversations might have been actually with you at Cap <laughs> <laughs> back when I was on the buyer side. Yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, it was interesting, people like would recognize that this was gonna be a problem. It just wasn't a problem that they were having right now because they're still trying to figure out how they could get two data scientists on the payroll to look at the data, to maybe build a model. So when I'm going there and being like, yeah, you know what, you're gonna have all these problems when your model's in production. You're not gonna be able to run anything. They're like, sure. Yeah. And so that was, uh, that was a little rough for a while, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool.
0: It's very, I mean, very different from nowadays. So, you know, fast forwarding to present day, it seems like a lot of the investment that's going in for startups is, you know, companies that are using applying LLMs to automating certain now human based workflows. And when we look at them, some of them, they're varying degrees, but some of them are a very tiny layer on top of OpenAI or another sort of off the shelf type foundational model. So where do you how do you see this playing out over the next six, 12 months? Where's the value going to be created? Uh, What companies are going to, you know, become the pillars?
1: Yeah. yeah so i think uh, one interesting thing is that this this wrapper over net new technology is not a new paradigm in terms of technology adoption so if you think about kind of when macOS came out it was a bunch of wrappers around basic unix utilities mm-hmm. that's what you got right and if you look at when the internet came around there's like a bunch of wrappers against basic networking utilities and so i think there's a normal evolution of software that starts with the wrappers around, which is because it's the low hanging fruit and it's the, and then people start understanding what the technology can do and how they can adopt it. And that's when you start getting the next wave. Right. And so if you look at like, you know, the first basic apps on the iPhone were like, really basic. Yeah. I mean, I joke around on this, but I think the number one app for a really long time was just the fart app. Like, right. you know, like that one's like on the iPhone, right? <laughs> Has I'm anyone sure. done like LMs for farts yet or is it? I'm sure I'm sure they have. <laughs> so, So I think you see that general evolution of how these technologies, the the low-hanging fruit happens first. People are like, okay, this is what I can exactly adapt to. And then you get the inspired kind of developers and inspired kind of researchers who are like, what if we did this? And the new stuff comes out. And so we're just probably in that phase of the technology.
0: So how does that play out then? What's, you know, a year from now or two years from now is that, you know, that kind of thin layer wrapper kind of gives way to the next, next phase.
1: Yeah, I think, well, I'm going to I have a bias here, and I work up with some companies that you know. I want this to be true as well. So. <laughs> You're allowed to be biased. I'm yeah, sure. I'm be, yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm going to be biased. But, so I think um, one of the problems that you see with these very large language models is the actual size, right? And so if you start thinking about production and how to run them, and you have cost, latency, uh, reproducibility across you know uh, you know different paradigms, and so um, I think we're going to have to go to a world where these Large language models get distilled into smaller large language models And that they can be run a lot cheaper and they can be run on kind of commercial hardware or whatever commercial hardware looks like and so In that process what you do is you you know what I've seen from at least the research side is you can essentially create task specific large language models that are much smaller um, and have the same performance and so I think you're gonna start seeing these kind of ensembles of, and, and workflows where you start with bigger, large language model as a router, and then you coordinate. And so we're probably gonna end up in a very similar spot the way we are right now, which is a ton of medium-sized models, just different style.
0: Interesting. So it almost sounds like you're saying that, that focus on inferencing time. Is there, a,
1: is there an opportunity for someone to create a company focused on inferencing time? <laughs> I absolutely think so. I think when we started Algorithmia, we really wanted to solve you know, what we thought was inference at scale, Globally kind of think about what an Akamai for models would look like right because you have to have them globally. We never got there Um, I still think now there's that up, you know, if you see how Bad the performance is when using the apis that are available from large language models the latency is terrible The models are slow. It's it's down half the time Um, And depending on where you are in the world on top of that so I think there's a absolute opportunity to go build out you know, a true inference service globally that does that. Now, I think it's still gonna be hard because the people who worry about that kind of stuff are usually pretty advanced. So you'll be in that same space where you're pitching this problem that maybe you'll have later. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Now, I remember even 5 years ago Jensen and the Nvidia crew were all pushing GPUs for inferencing, but at the time the you know the predominant inferencing workloads were just rel you know tabular structured data models that really you know weren't that compute intensive and outside of a relatively small amount of computer vision models there wasn't a huge need for it, but it seems LLMs could change could change the way that looks and all of a sudden make all this stuff really relevant. I mean
1: we we launched I want to say as the end of 2016 or beginning of 2017 where we were doing inference over GPUs. And we launched it and we needed to do something to showcase it. And we thought it would be cool to build. And we built out um, a website called Colorize It. And so you could turn black and white pictures into color pictures. And uh, it was based off of a neural net from Berkeley. So we got the three PhDs from Berkeley to help us out, put the whole thing, deployed it. uh, And we launched it. We thought it'd be the coolest thing ever. It made it to the front page of Reddit. And so Reddit has a lot of traffic and everybody was uploading pictures uh, to us. And so I think at one point, you know, it was great because it showcased that our platform scaled. Yeah. The problem is we actually hit the maximum amount of GPUs that Amazon was actually willing to give us. Uh, I got a call and they're like, no more GPUs for you. And yeah. I was like, why? He's like, well, you've saturated this region. Uh, and so it was a very intense bill. That's <laughs> happening
0: that right now, actually. A lot of yeah. people are having yeah. trouble
1: getting GPUs on, yeah. on a... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think they, you know, they've, they've increased capacity, but I think we, we, we were lucky enough, we were one of the first to use the, what was it, the P2s on, uh, on Amazon. And then we launched the N4s on Azure and both times we actually were scaling those out. But yeah, it, it was obvious that you were going to want to do inference on GPUs for neural nets. But you always going to have to do this cost benefit analysis, which is, OK, what does the workflow look like? What's the SLA I need? Am I willing to pay 4x more? Right now you're in the situation where these large jungle, small, if you want to run them, you're not using a GPU. It's just gonna take forever. I mean, there's some that you can do with CPUs if they're small enough, but yeah, you kind of need it.
0: No, I think that some of the LM makers are actually have clusters of these eight eight times, you know, Nvidia's top it was the A one hundred cards, and yeah. each request is being striped across eight of
1: like Nvidia's top GPUs, just so it, you know responds in a semi-performant manner, it's amazing. Yeah, OpenAI, I think, got a specific cluster by Microsoft built an entire data center for them. Yeah. I think that was part of the deal. It's amazing. <laughs> a lot of power. Um, cool.
0: So with the switch to LLMs, I mean, you've been really passionate for a long time around MLOps. With LLM ops emerging to take on, you know, these LMs bring on a whole set of new challenges. But you basically have all the traditional challenges along with a bunch of new ones. How do you see sort of the LLM ops ecosystem growing to extend beyond ML ops?
1: Yeah. So uh, I'll start because. I promised Demetrius this from MLOps, but there's no such thing as LLM Ops or FM Ops. It's just MLOps. Uh,
0: <laughs> oh, so you're anti-LLM Ops here. I, I just, All right, you heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, I'm not
1: anti. I just think there's no need for a new name. I, th- I could, like, You are working with different components, but uh, I think it's still operations for machine learning, right? You're just running machine learning at scale. So I think the interesting piece is a lot of the problems are still there, right? And uh, And I'm still kind of developing my thesis on it. But when I looked at... I did this similar exercise when I actually started Algorithmia, which was I looked at what it took to deploy a piece of software and I said, okay, what are the pieces that break when all this becomes probabilistic? And that was, okay, hey, these are the interesting pieces, right? There's the inference piece, there's the training piece, there's the monitoring piece. These are all the pieces that, uh, you know, you needed to go actually do that. In the world now of large language models, I think in general, the kind of the data space in preparing the data and actually getting the right data becomes almost even more important in the sense that you have to prepare these surgical data sets to be able to influence kind of either the training or the fine tuning. So that becomes really interesting. I think the training gets blown up, right? It's a complete different style of training models. It's a, you need different hardware you need. So the whole how we're going to go train? You're talking um, about the fine tuning or even the core? No, just the train. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even even the foundational models. It's a just different style. I don't think the current commercial workbenches adopt that well. I mean, people use you know SageMaker and other tools, but it's not. You know, I think Ray's becoming a big uh, thing that people are using for that. Yeah, this seems kind of like this continual training process, yeah. right? It never really ends. It's just constantly evolving. Exactly. Experimentation becomes really interesting from a component perspective because now you have like that still matters if you think about. How you do in the fine tuning uh, process, kind of like how you run these experiments, how you kind of manage them. Inferences, you know, I the anything doing inference today, pretty much doesn't work because you don't have commercial hardware on the other side that you can do it. So if you're trying to manage memory and GPUs, if you're trying to manage like everything breaks, so that needs to be refigured out. And then, uh, and we've talked about this before, like, I think the monitoring has it's uh, it's boom again, you know, a uh, bigger boom, right. Around this, because people are really trying to understand, you know, what the outputs look like, what, you know, when, when, I think there's certain concepts that, you know, kind of maybe get lost, but how to understand what inputs are working without outputs and what's happening and how far off from these things and what do you actually get to ground truth with? These are all things that you matter. So I think the space is still very exciting to me, to me. There won't be a difference between machine learning and software in the next, you know, over the next couple of years. I don't know what the prediction of five years call it, right? Because it's going to be implied that every single piece of software has some level of ML involved in it, and so maybe at that point it's not even ML ops, right? It's just DevOps, right. and <laughs> just the two merged together. Yeah,
0: no, but it's just the, the step change from, as you were saying earlier, deterministic to probabilistic, yeah. and what that means. But all software at some, yeah, exactly, it's just all like software a, becomes probabilistic at some point. Yeah, absolutely, and there's a step change in sort of. The, the, the tasks that it can accomplish, uh, which is amazing to see. Um, tell me a little bit, you know, over the last, I feel like in, the, in our four year journey, which is relatively recent, we've seen some of our customers go from having a, just a handful of models in production to, in some cases, hundreds of models in production. And like drawing that line forward, we firmly believe there's going to be thousands and tens of thousands of models in production, uh, especially at these large enterprises doing all sorts of tasks. And so, what about the current ML ops and workflows breaks? You know, you're talking about what you know, what, what LMs break? What, what do you think that kind of scale breaks?
1: Yeah, I think the general management, right? So again, if you think about the big components in software development for managing very large software projects, right? Your source code management systems, your Jira ticketing system, the whole thing is really around, you know, partially it's about management, partially it's about governance, right? Of that, of that code base, where it is, what state it is, how we're doing, what's where, and when right so you're not losing things i think that same philosophy needs to be applied i I think it's fairly normal to or should be fairly normal to assume that most companies will be in the, especially large companies thousands of models and different parts of software it's like okay well how do you manage all of that right how do you know where it's running how do you know that they're still working you know who called what when with what data and why that needs to be able to answer um, inside that space um Either you're gonna be forced to answer that question because you have a regulatory component to it, it's, you know, you can get fined. So financial services is sort of kind of doing this. Yes, yeah, so I think you just, the general management of, the, of these and how they get applied into different parts of software. And again, we do this today in just a different side of our stack, right? You don't, you know, people understand where their code bases are and what components are and what they're building and how to track all these things. And I think that's just, you know, once you have those workflows and kind of philosophies in place, Managing one versus thousands of models, yeah, you know, shouldn't be that big of a stretch. Mm-hmm.
0: One last question on this topic: What still frustrates you about the space? You know, you, obviously with factory, I'm sure you must spend a lot of time thinking about where the gaps are. What, what can the community do to address some
1: of those? I mean, I still think at the core inference isn't solved. If I think about how you're going to run LLMs on every single corner of Earth with a low latency, so I think right now the I think the state of the art on GPT 3.5 inference was like 29 milliseconds. And so if just 29 milliseconds to do one inference, and I have to stack these things, I have to build a workflow. Like I have a whole bunch of use cases that just don't, work right so if you think about like uh, in financial services i know you guys work with a lot with it like you know you have the sub 20 millisecond use cases you have the 20 to 90 millisecond use cases you have the 90 plus right and so how are you going to fit these things into those workflows so we're going to have to come up either with ways of either you can compressing the models making them small running them in a bunch of different places but also it's just you know there's physics involved right if i'm in australia i need to be able to you know, call a model in Australia. If I'm in Vietnam, I want to be able to call the model in Vietnam. That sounds great. So yeah, sure, I can replicate it. But now I'm fine-tuning models, right? And you're interacting with it and you're fine-tuning it. And so if we're a corporate and we want to grab the fine-tuned knowledge as a a group versus individuals, how do I replicate that across the entire globe? I think there's a whole level of challenges that, you know, uh, when Kenny and I kind of set out to, you know, say, hey, this is you know, you start dreaming about what you could solve that are completely unsolved, yeah. you know, still. And, and that to me is, uh, uh, I think, still where, where, where there's something, there's some work to do.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: With foundation models, you know,
0: we, a lot of the buzz the last six months has been around language models. But we've seen for, you know, traditional computer vision tasks, a lot, a lot of, you know, going back years, people using transfer learning and other uh, techniques to solve this. Do you think we'll see the same thing come to structured data at some point? Or do you think this is really just in the domain of unstructured data? How do you see that playing out?
1: There, there's a couple of papers coming out for time series, right? And using kind of these models for time series. And uh so I think you'll 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 start seeing that kind of movement. The question then becomes. You know, you know, there's this kind of common joke that with structured data, it's like, you know, when doesn't boost just beat everything, right? <laughs> like, like you can solve most of these problems already. And, and, so, and so the question is, what are you gonna get other than trying to like, you know, fit something that probably like, so I think there is going to be a bunch of uh, uh, advancement in it. And as I said, the time series space is probably the most interesting.
0: I mean, you think there'll be like a general-purpose time series thing where you can give it a prompt for whatever task you're doing. There is
1: there. there was a paper. I have to go look it up. But there was a paper recently that came out on literally that, cool. uh, which was like kind of like how do you build out? And I'm not really sure if what it's looking at is the shape of the time series and trying to kind of you know reference it. But like there was, a, it was it was really interesting. So I think we're going to get to there in that space.
0: Very cool. I think we have time for maybe one or two questions from the audience. I know mean, Victoria, we do we have some questions. All right, so this question, you've talked a little bit about kind of what, you know, early days of things and what might be coming. This question is from Sam Zeitlin who asks, what do you think about clearing houses of shared models like Hugging Face? At what point can we stop creating so many similar models and just reuse existing ones that are close enough?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a great question. The idea that you should be able to of use these models that exist especially this open source movement where you can kind of start from the basis of these and then start from that point and go forward is really how i think the whole large language model world is going to evolve right so you saw in the last it feels like it's been forever but it's like the last three weeks right Right. like uh, you know like i am four four or five different that was like two generations yeah Yeah, right there's this two leaps and it's only two weeks you know they're launching all these like you know you could start with like stanford put out alpaca uh, which you can run on your laptop, and you can start training your own model. So like this idea of personalized large language models which start from a basis of open source is really interesting. And at, the, and at the core of that, Hugging Face is showcasing, storing, deploying those open source models and making them available. So that is a starting point. It seems like almost already reality that that's gonna be kind of the, the general thing. You can customize your own model to yourself, uh, run it privately, et cetera. Yeah,
0: it's been amazing. We've seen over the years a number of vendors going back to the you know the Hadoop providers and people that try to create these um, marketplaces for models, and it's never really caught on. But it does. It feels like yeah. with this new generation of models, they are they are really pretty generalizable. Yeah, this one's not dissimilar. This one is for you, Diego from Will Skurdick. He's asking, "What do you make of the head training wrappers for LLMs as a business model? Basically, creating domain experts for customers. Is this a short-lived trend?"
1: I think, so there's kind of two areas. One, which I guess I call it AI UX, which is the experience of delivering AI into a workflow. And a lot of these wrappers are doing that, right? They're delivering an experience and building UXs and building, not UXs in the pixel form, but the actual kind of how you get the user to experience this workflow um, is a hard problem. And you can create, in my opinion, truly kind of things that that stick right the question is okay how easy it is to disrupt right i i think um you know you if you look at you know microsoft's about to launch you know llms into literally every single app right and so okay well what are you providing beyond that are you providing beyond that experience are you, you know what's the workflow that you're tying into because that's going to be a disruptive i'm not saying it's going to be the best i'm just saying it's going to be there right because word is on your laptop so you're going to open it. It's just going to be there. Uh, and so I think you'll have to be really clever about those things, but I think there is space for creating very specific experiences for different kinds of users. Cool. Well, thanks for those questions, audience.
0: We're close to the end of time here, but there's a couple more things I want to ask you about. One was this, uh, this letter that came out last week from, from Elon Musk and Imad and a bunch of the AI people signing saying we should pause training on giant models. And uh, for the next six months while we kind of figure out what they mean. I'm curious just to, you know, your thoughts on that and the idea of AI safety with these models and, and how we should be thinking about it in general.
1: Yeah, so, so I think, you know, the, the concept behind this pause is people are like, hey, we don't really know what's going to happen with it. But I also think if you look at the entire history of humanity, like when has, hey, stop ever worked yes. in technology, <laughs> right? It's just, I, I, it feels a little bit like a fool's errand here. It um, also coming from a lot of people who are at the forefront and they're saying, oh, we're at the forefront, therefore you should all stop. Yeah, and it's right. like, that feels a little disingenuous, right? And so um, I, I think, look, I think there's, you know, a lot of AI safety people and engineers that said, hey, you know, there's there's an unknown and valid, right? And, and an unknown is an unknown and the unknown could be horrible. I just don't see how this implementation of uh, stopping or saying, take a pause, you know, other countries aren't going to stop. Right. Other, you know, other governments aren't going to stop. There's no evidence in the history of humanity that's being like stop advancing has ever worked out in our favor. And so I just don't I I don't get it, to be honest. It seems kind of. Yeah.
0: What do you think, I mean, this is obviously a form of kind of you know, industry self-policing, albeit I'll I'll be yeah. a very organic one. I'm curious your thoughts, like longer term, is this something where you know, it needs to be more regulated or are the regulators even gonna be able to move anywhere near fast enough to make yeah. a difference here?
1: One of the main arguments is misinformation, right? And so they're like, oh, look how easy it is to generate misinformation. Sure, misinformation is easy to generate, but like the distribution channels existed before this. Right? I mean, so are we going to go shut down the distribution channels? Because I can generate all the nonsense I want, but if I can't distribute it, yeah. Right? And so I think that's the, the I'm not against regulation as long as it makes sense. There's, this is just fear mongering, it feels like, in terms of we need to have something concrete that actually might work and say, okay, well, here's how we would go study it. Here's how we go check it. But like, you know, OpenAI doesn't publish any of their, now they've decided not any of their work, any of that, you know, they're just, it's closed. Now, right? And, and people have a problem with that. Okay, that's, you know, if you really are super concerned about, you know, the safety of the world and stuff like that, just make it open, right? There's a ton of researchers who want to go touch on it and break, you know, and kind of see what it does and want to be able to test, hey, this would be a risk. Like, that's how we've done in all technology. You have an academic world that will always be curious and pushing the envelope to try to test those boundaries. So do I think we need a regulation, obviously, once we actually know what to regulate.
0: All right, one last, one last question for the road and then we'll let Diego get on his way, but if you could conjure up a startup, and with factory maybe you can, <laughs> to automate any part of your life using LLMs and we're guaranteed it would actually work, what would you like to see?
1: So like I've been using pretty much as LLMs in like, bunch of my workflow like on a day-to-day basis uh and the best way i've described it is like i feel like i'm like neo in the matrix it's just made me 10 times more productive like everything i'm just faster at because i can you know i was uh joking i was trying to get some of these models running on my computer and i'm not like particularly good with like pytorch and it was just debugging pytorch for me and like that was amazing like i was like oh, i would have never done this i think like i'm very bad at time management in terms of like my calendar and over committing and like planning and I. I've, uh, I've traveled to cities that I was not supposed to be at, and I've booked hotels for the wrong days. And so like, if I could just get that done for me, like I would be, I would personally be in a much better spot.
0: <laughs> that seems doable. So there's gotta be some startup <laughs> out there working on that, right? Somewhere, if you, if you talk to Diego, if you are. Yeah,
1: yeah. You're lucky I made it here today on time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, hey Diego, thank you very much for coming out. Really appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Ground Truth. Thanks so much for listening. To make sure you're updated about future episodes, give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're interested in attending one of our live events, follow us on Twitter at It's Arthur AI. Until next time.